The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. to 1 Corinthians 15. There's a Bible in the pew back in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at home, we would love for you to take one of these as a gift from us. 1 Corinthians 15, it's on page 904 in the pew Bible, starting in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because he testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, but also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Luann. Good morning. Happy Easter. He is risen. He is risen indeed. It is a joy to celebrate with you all. This is without a question my favorite Sunday to celebrate with this church family every year. And so thank you for coming to worship Jesus together with us. Uh, We gather today to celebrate uh, not just kind of the beauty of flowers around the room, though that's fun. Not just to sing songs, though that's wonderful. Like to sing with a choir behind. I'm, I'm in the kind of like, give us that Easter choir every Sunday crew. Let's go. That was awesome. Awesome. What, a, what an incredible time. I'm losing my voice. And people are like, do you lose your voice from preaching four times? No. It's from singing with that band four times. They're like, just don't sing. I'm like, I can't not sing. It's too fun. Um, To celebrate with you all is incredible. It's a gift to celebrate baptisms. It's beautiful, beautiful. But the reason why we're doing all of this is to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And to celebrate the fact that Jesus, the creator of the heavens and the earth, one with the Father, one with the Spirit, laid down his life on the cross for our sins and rose again on the third day. And that reality has profound meaning for our life here and now and for the way we view the future of our lives and the future of the world itself. And so that's what we're going to talk about uh, this morning. Uh, We are going to talk about how the resurrection of Jesus reshapes and changes the way we view all things, if it is true that Christ is risen indeed. And so let's pray uh, to the risen King Jesus, who's here with us even now, that he would work among us in power. Let's pray together. And Jesus, we come right now, and we're so grateful that this morning we're not alone. That we're not just kind of gathering together to do a thing, to remember stuff that happened long ago, that you reign as the risen king, that you are alive and that you promised even after your resurrection. 
that you'd be with us always, even to the end of the age. And so here we are almost 2,000 years later, and we're just claiming this reality that you are with us. And so we pray that you would work in power among us through the Spirit to awaken in us new life, to renew the life of your people and to create new life in those who haven't yet come to know you. And that we would be transformed, not merely by your death, though that would transform us as you consider your love and atoning work on the cross, but also through the new life of the resurrection. So help us this morning as we spend time in your word. Would you work among us in power? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We live in a world that's filled with tension. Tension. And it's all around us all of the time, but we feel it in particular on a day like today. You, on a day like today, are surrounded by so much beauty. There's beauty all around us. A lot of the reason why we do the kind of contrast from Good Friday to Easter Sunday is just the new life that's represented even in the flowers that make their way around the room as we celebrate and sing and dance and laugh, as we see, as we see kids that are smiling and enjoying life and squirming and talking and chatting. It's beauty. It's all beauty. As you see baptism, new life, and people that are committing their life to follow Jesus, that's beauty. As you engage and talk with new friends and maybe reconnect with old friends as you spend time with family members. It's beauty. Maybe today some of you kids have already gotten Easter baskets or maybe you'll do an Easter egg hunt or whatever your family does to celebrate. There's so much beauty in that. These little plastic dumb eggs that are filled with candy. They're filled with candy. There's beauty in candy, whether it's chocolates or jelly beans, whatever it is for you, it's beauty. Cadbury eggs, come on. Is that still a thing? All right. Maybe it's beauty. What about Marshmallow Peeps, is that a thing? All right, <clears throat> confession, I have a love-hate relationship with Marshmallow Peeps. I look at them and I think, that doesn't belong in the human body. <laughs> and then I look at them a few minutes later and realize I ate them all. I literally ate them all. And, uh, and regret it, typically, those nasty little bunnies. Do a number, do a number on my stomach. Uh, there, there's so much beauty, there's laughter, there's joy, there's family, there's friendship, there's love. There's culture, there's diversity all around our city, all around the world that reflect the beauty of God in all these different diverse ways. It's, it's wonderful. We live in a city where the towering mountains kind of hover over us, inviting you to come and adventure and explore and experience the majesty of God. It's incredible. And then we spend time in the city where you're surrounded by human beings created in God's image that are doing something with the world, creating things out of the world that are stunning, whether it's art or music or culture or businesses or food or drink or restaurants, coffee, whatever it is. People do incredible things in this world. It's beauty. And you're surrounded by it. But at the same time, you're also surrounded by this undeniable reality of a, of a pervasive brokenness and pain that marks all of the human experience. You can't engage in the beauty too long without also feeling the brokenness. Brokenness in families, brokenness in the world, bro brokenness is all around us. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. When we worship today on a day like today, we're here celebrating and laughing and many will go to the park or you've gone to the park this morning, you've connected, you might have a lunch later on today, whatever it is. Meanwhile, there are families in Ukraine that have been displaced out of their homes that are suffering immensely with unimaginable loss, whose lives have been ripped apart by war. We have families around the world struggling with a water crisis, poverty, global poverty is devastating families and communities. In our own nation, we think about today that there are in Nashville six families in a whole community that is reeling and crushed by this devastating evil, the senseless act of violence, where somebody came in and shot three children in an elementary school and three adults. 
We think about our own city at East High School where another senseless act of violence has devastated families, leaving a lot of people reeling, processing fears, confusion, anger, frustration. The brokenness is all around us and it's inside of us too. It's inside of us. It runs straight through our heart. It affects our own relationships. So you think about strained family relationships. You think about division among friends and community members. You think about the pain that kind of permeates the human experience with disease, chronic pain, and death itself. Many suffering and have suffered incredible losses. And we all feel that. That's in the room today. And so we can, we can sing and we can smile and we can talk. And it's worth it because there's beauty. But there's also all of this pain. And then there's the stuff in our own heart. Our own struggles with anxiety, our own struggles with addiction, our own struggles with mental health, our own struggles with depression, our own struggles navigating the pressure and the weariness from the pressure we feel as we just try to navigate through life and the challenges that life brings each and every one of us. So you live in that tension. We arrive today in that world that's filled with tension. It's into that tension we're making a bold and audacious claim that Jesus Christ is risen. And we believe that the resurrection of Jesus means something for that tension. It means something for that tension that we experience in this life. Something profound. But the question we have to ask today, when I keep saying, he is risen, what do you say? He is risen indeed. Sure. Do we believe it? Do we believe it? Not just can we repeat it. We've done that great. You're like, I've repeated it like 12 times today. It's enough. It's enough. Do you believe it in the, in the deepest part of your heart? And do you believe it? And if you struggle to believe it, you're not alone. I struggle to believe it. All of us in varying degrees and in different seasons struggle to believe it. It's a wild claim that a person who was dead rose from the dead bodily out of the grave. It's a wild claim. And if you struggle to believe it, it's not just that there are other people around you today that struggle to believe it, though there are so many of us, maybe all of us in different times. But this letter that Paul wrote, the Apostle Paul, to a church in Corinth was actually written to a church that was struggling to believe in the resurrection. They're struggling to believe that Christ is risen indeed. And so that's what Paul is talking about. What Paul's going to claim here is that that struggle has massive implications. Whether or not Christ is risen has ma- massive implications for how you view yourself how you view relationship with God, how you view the future of the world, and how you view your role in that future as we live our lives here and now. And his claim is that the resurrection of Jesus gives unshakable hope for the future of the world and profound meaning for our life here and now. And so we're just going to walk through the passage this morning and highlight a few things and consider what it has to say about the hope of the resurrection. And the first thing we need to consider is, again, what do you do with the resurrection? Do you believe it? Do you believe that Christ is risen indeed? Look with me. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to pick up in verse 12. Here's what it says. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Paul, earlier in this chapter, made a fundamental claim that he said this is the centerpiece of the Christian faith that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and on the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. And then Paul keeps going and says, and then he appeared. Like it's not just something people decided to believe, people saw him and interacted with him. First he appeared to his closest followers, where they got to touch his hands and his side, they got to eat meals with him and engage with him and walk with him down the street, he appeared to his closest followers. Later he appeared to over 500 people at one point point at one point in time 
And Paul says, those people, many of them are still alive. And he tells the Corinthians, hey, you're struggling to believe this. There are people you can talk to that have interacted with him. And last, he says, he appeared to me. The risen Christ appeared to me. And I've been proclaiming it to you. Our team has been proclaiming it to you. We've been sharing it to you. How can some of you say it's not true when we've been telling you that we, we spent time with him, we ate a meal with him, we talked to him, we touched him, we feasted with him and prayed with him. He taught us what it meant to be his followers and to live a life spreading the good news of the kingdom around the world. How could you not believe? And I'll say, well, Paul, because it's hard to believe. Because <laughs> in my experience, I've never seen a dead person come back to life. In no human's experience have we experienced something like that. It's a, it's a wild claim. So Paul's contention is, but you have eyewitnesses. Well, here we are 2,000 years ago, and all those eyewitnesses are off the scene. So what, what do we have? What, what do we know? As we're thinking about, do you believe that Christ is truly risen? We, we have some things. In fact, there are things that not only Christians agree with, but even non-Christian historians would agree with, as these are just verifiable things that we know about Jesus from history. We know that there is a Jewish man named Jesus from a little town in Israel called Nazareth. We know that to be true. We know that that Jewish man named Jesus accumulated a large group of followers. And that that group of followers believed that he was potentially their long-awaited king, the long-awaited king of Israel who had come to redeem and restore Israel. We know that to be true from history, not just Christian history, not just the Bible, but even from extra-biblical history and historians. We know that to be true. We know that as Jesus taught, he taught in a way that was so different from the religious establishment and in some ways created a tension with the religious establishment that a conflict emerged between the religious leaders of Jerusalem and Jesus and his followers. We know that to be true. We know that many of Jesus' followers claimed, at least claimed, that he had done miracles that they had seen and he had healed their bodies and their ailments and their infirmities and their brokenness. They at least claimed that. We know that those were claimed to be true about Jesus. We also know that as that group of followers grew over time, the tension with the religious establishment escalated, and eventually one of Jesus' own followers betrayed Jesus and handed him over to the religious leaders in their society. Again, these, these things, any historian would say, we believe this to be true. We then believe to be true that the religious establishment, a council of Jewish leaders, convicted him of heresy against God and God's word and Torah. We know from history that he was handed over from the Ro to the Romans. The Romans convicted him as an insurrectionist and sentenced him to death on a cross. We know historically that Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross. We know that he was buried in a tomb. We know these things to be true. What we also know to be true is that there was a guard put over the tomb and that on the third day, the body of Jesus was no longer in that tomb. You say, how do we know that? Well, as history continued to move on, the reality of the empty tomb was something that the Jewish society and the Jewish leaders who were rejecting Jesus had to do something about. As the claim of the resurrected Jesus was moving its way around, they couldn't produce a body because the tomb was empty. And so we actually can read, you can read about this in Matthew 28. They began to spread a story that on Saturday night, the Saturday night before this kind of empty tomb experience on Sunday morning. On that Saturday night, the guards who were guarding the tomb fell asleep and Jesus's followers came and stole the body and claimed that he was risen. And so those are the two stories going around. And there are two stories that show that the whole first century kind of community in Israel was trying to make sense of an empty tomb. They're trying to make sense of it. You have two claims that began to circulate, one by the followers of Jesus. That's what we're claiming today, that the empty tomb is because Jesus actually rose from the dead bodily 
And he appeared to his followers. He commissioned them. He lived with them, worked with them, talked with them, ate with them, prayed with them, commissioned them to spread the good news of the kingdom. And the other story that circulated was the story of the religious establishment that rejected Jesus. And their story is that the body was stolen while the guard fell asleep at night, even though that was the guard's duty was to keep watch over the tomb. They must have fallen asleep and the body was stolen. You have to decide today, what do you do with the empty tomb? If it's just a historical reality, if the, if the whole first century community, including non-Christians, are trying to make sense of the empty tomb and at least create a story that makes kind of a plausible option either way, you have to decide what you're going to do. And if you decide, which many have, that the resurrection didn't happen and you decide to believe the story of the religious leaders, it means at least one of two things and you just have to deal with this. It means one, that Jesus and his followers were liars who pulled off the greatest hoax, the greatest con in the history of the world. You'd have to believe that. Not that they're like good people, but that they like pulled off a scam to trick the whole world. But if you believe that, you have to, you have to ask some questions about motive. Why would they, why would they do that? Why would they do that? Because it didn't make them rich. It didn't make them popular. It didn't make their life better. In fact, they were disavowed by their families. They were ostracized by their employers. They were beaten and kind of marginalized by community. Many of them faced imprisonment. Many of them faced suffering, persecution. And many of them, in fact, many of the first followers of Jesus faced death because of their allegiance to the claim that Jesus was risen. And so we we just know this to be true. We've learned this as kids and we learn this from our kids that you don't lie to get into trouble. You lie to get out of trouble, right? Like, we just know that. That's like basic human psychology. Like, you don't lie to get yourself into trouble. You tell a lie to get yourself out of trouble. This claim, this claim got them into trouble. It meant pain in their life. It meant pain. In fact, it was their allegiance to this claim that brought all sorts of pain into their experience. We also know from the human experience that when faced with somebody, if they're holding on to a lie that they know to be false, and they're facing potential painful consequences, suffering and death, eventually people break down under the pressure and finally tell the truth. None of the original followers of Jesus broke down and finally confessed that they're a part of some scam. All of them faced sustained lives of suffering and loss and even faced the prospect and the eventuality of their own death with a deep-seated conviction that their story and their faith would be vindicated in the resurrection, that they're claiming to be true. So them being liars just doesn't make a ton of sense. The other option is that they were deceived. That they were deceived. Maybe they weren't consciously lying, but maybe they were deceived. Somebody else did it and then tricked them. Sure, you could say that, but again, you'd have to deal with the fact that they were so utterly convinced that the resurrection was true, that they lived sustained lives of suffering and allegiance to it, claiming not just that I heard it was true, that I saw him, I touched him, I walked with him, I ate with him, I prayed with him. 500 of us were there. They weren't just saying, I heard the story and so I believe it and I'm going to hold on to it because somebody tricked me. They, they lived their whole lives in deep-seated allegiance to this conviction that Christ is risen from the dead and, and you have to make your own decision. Do you believe it to be true? Is he risen indeed? Is Christ risen Indeed. And the options are really simple. Either Jesus was the son of God who died on a cross and rose again on the third day, or he's either a con man or delusional and his followers were either liars or deceived people that spread a pathological story to the rest of the world that has transformed 
millions of lives throughout the past 2,000 years. You have to make that decision. And the options really are that stark. Here's the way C.S. Lewis kind of paints the tension of the options. He says, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. I think we have a lot of people in our culture that claim some allegiance to Jesus but don't live in any way Like reflecting the fact that you believe that he's the risen Lord of life who has all authority in the heavens and on the earth, that he's truly the son of God. And so we say he's worth following and worth learning about and worth modeling our life over, maybe a great teacher, but to give full allegiance to Jesus as the risen Lord is something that's hard to do. And Jesus has not left that option over to us. If he's not risen, it has profound implications. That's what Paul deals with in 1 Corinthians 4, uh, 15, 14 through 19. He says this, essentially, if Jesus isn't risen, that your faith in Christ is pointless. To follow Jesus, a failed Messiah, which there are many failed Messiahs who claim to be a Messiah figure and died, to follow him is pointless. It's empty. It's hollow. It's meaningless. He says that our preaching is in vain. We're, we're like lying to you. We're misrepresenting God. I've been, Paul's saying, I've been telling you he's risen. And if he's not risen, it means I'm a liar. And it means this whole gospel is a total sham. A total sham. If he's not risen, what we're doing here and now today is a colossal waste of time. Like parties are fun. Let's dress up. Let's pack those plastic eggs full of candy. Let's dance and have brunch. But to sing songs to a dead guy? Why? To spend time reading ancient biographies about his life and organizing our whole life around him, why would we do that? Paul also says that if he's not risen, we're stuck in our sins. All that brokenness we talked about in our own heart and in the world, there's no hope that we can be liberated from that. There's no hope that you can be forgiven, washed. There's no evidence that God sees you in those painful spaces and loves you. There's no hope as you suffer and as you wrestle through the tensions of life that anything good could ever be redeemed out of it. There's no hope for us in our sin. We're stuck in our sin. There's suffering. Paul says if there's no resurrection, then his life and the life of his community said this is the most pitiful life imaginable. What what a pitiful existence if there's no resurrection. But that's not what he believed and it's not what we believe. It's not what we believe. We believe that Christ is risen indeed. We believe that he is truly risen. Look what he says in verse 20. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. If Christ is truly risen from the dead, if he's risen indeed, It gives incredible hope to our life here and now as we consider the future of the world and we consider who God calls us to be and what's available to you here and now, the new life that Christ offers to all who follow him in faith. It's a beautiful, beautiful reality. What Paul's claiming in this passage is that all of the pain in the world, all of the things that sort of reflect and anticipate death, including injustice, division, pain, 
illness, disease, weariness, all of it. All these things that kind of get wrapped up in this concept of death and destruction, all of it is because humanity sinned against God. Adam sinned against God, and all of us who have followed after him have sinned against him. We brought death and destruction into the world. And that Jesus saw us in that space and didn't push away from us, but moved towards us with love to actually lay down his life, to atone for our sin, to take the penalty of our sin upon himself. We celebrated that on Good Friday, what he did to take the wrath of God upon his own life, to experience the death that we deserved. And then on the third day rose again from the dead to give new life to all who trust in him. And the way the New Testament will talk about that is this idea of new creation this first fruits. And so when Jesus walked out of the tomb on that first Easter Sunday and that stone was rolled away, the way that the New Testament imagines it is this whole new creation began. This whole new world opened up where dead things can be restored, broken things can be healed, broken people can be forgiven and redeemed. And this new creation life offers us so much. The implications transform our existence in this world. At least three things that we'll close with. Number one, if Christ is risen, If Christ is risen, it means that the God of the universe loves you. It means that he loves you. It means that the death of Jesus on the cross wasn't just a tragedy of a good man getting executed. It means that the death of Jesus on the cross is the work of the Son of God displaying the love of God for you to see you in the pain, in the darkness, in the brokenness, in the sin, in your own contribution to the pain of this world. He sees all of it. Instead of pushing away from you, he moves towards you in compassion and love to lay down his life as an expression of the sacrificial love that God has for us even while we're enemies. If he's risen, it means that the God of the universe loves you. And what he has available for you is forgiveness and reconciliation and a whole new life, a whole new life in relationship with him. Second, it means that there's an unshakable hope that we have for the future of the world. A lot of people will, will think when they think about the resurrection, they think at, at, it means that the resurrection means that Jesus really is who he says he was. It's like, that's totally true. It does. Or the resurrection means that what he did on the cross really worked. That's true. That's also true. Really, really does mean that. But it also means the beginning of a whole new creation. When Jesus walked out of the grave, that's what Paul talks about when he calls him the first fruits. It's like the first evidence of new life that God is bringing into the world. God is bringing new life into a dead world, new life into the dead world through the resurrection of Jesus. It's the beginning of a dawn of a whole new age, an age where dead and broken and lost and weary and lonely and depressed and anxious and broken and sinful people can experience new life. And what the New Testament promises and what the whole biblical story promises is not that the future of the world is a world where Humans who trust in Jesus get to escape the corrupt and broken world to go float in the sky forever with God while the world suffers down here. That's not the biblical vision of the future. The biblical vision of the future is that what God did for Jesus in raising his material body from the grave, he will eventually do from the whole world. The creation itself will be made new, a whole new creation, not a separate heaven and earth. The picture in Revelation is heaven and earth becoming one, all things new. And all those who have trusted in Jesus get to experience that resurrection life. He turns graves into gardens. Dead bodies are like seeds that have been planted. 
And when the resurrection comes, those seeds grow up like Jesus came out of the tomb into a material, corporeal, real, physical experience in this life, on this planet, with all things new. And all of the pain and brokenness of this world is finally washed away. And all of the beauty that we've experienced in this life, we will see as just been a foretaste, like a little, a little appetizer for the beauty that is in store for all who put their faith in Jesus. A world of justice and love and peace and righteousness and joy and friendship as we live with God and with one another in joy with him on the new creation forever and ever and ever. That is an unshakable hope because Christ is risen indeed. And third, it means there's profound meaning for our life here and now. Profound meaning, not as we just kick back and relax and wait for the end to come or kick back and relax and wait to go to heaven when we die or whatever you imagine. We begin to experience the beginning of the new creation now. When Jesus walked out of the grave, the new creation began. And the way Paul will talk about it in a later letter he wrote to the same church in 2 Corinthians, we call it, in chapter 5, he says this. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if you put your faith in Jesus as a son of God who laid down his life for you and rose again on the third day and committed your life to following him, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The way it works out in the original languages is if anyone is in Christ, united to him, new creation. Like the new creation is happening. It's breaking into the presence here and now. You get to experience life and love and joy and peace and righteousness and hope and transformation. Not perfectly, it's still a battle. But every time you show love to someone who disagrees with you or who has wronged you, it's a taste of the new creation. Every time you forgive someone who has wronged you or you ask for forgiveness for the wrongs you've done to others with humility and honesty and ownership, seeking to make amends where you can, it's a taste of the new creation. Every time you show up and try to love and welcome outsiders and marginalize, every time you do works of justice or advocate and give voice to the voiceless and welcome the outsiders, every time you do that, it's a taste of the new creation. It's a taste where the whole world is headed. Every time you show up in your day and with the hours God's given you, you show up to live your life in self-sacrificial love, servant-hearted love for others. You're giving the world a taste of the new creation. Every time you face chaos or pain or difficulty and you trust with peace in the reign of God over all things, you give the world a taste of the new creation. Every time you find joy, even in suffering, as you're experiencing something that your Savior experienced before you on his way to the resurrection, and you believe that this suffering is not the end of the story, it is a pathway into the new creation life, you're giving the world a foretaste, an appetizer of where the whole thing's headed. We get to live as Easter people, as resurrection people, even when you face death, your own death or the death of a loved one, as you trust in Jesus, united to him, you can face that death with incredible hope because the dead in Christ will rise. And when you face those realities with hope, you're giving the world a foretaste of the new creation. And that's who we're called to be. It's who we're called to be, but it's not always easy. It's often hard. We have our doubts and our struggles. And that's why Paul ends this whole section in 1 Corinthians 15 with this profound encouragement to all followers of Jesus. He says, in the light of the resurrection of Jesus, in the light of the future of what God's doing in the world and what he's doing even now to bring new life out of these dead places in the world, in the light of these things, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. The life you live now matters. 
The joy you bring to the world now matters. The love you bring into the world matters. The humility you bring into the world matters. It's giving the world a taste of the new creation life that God has in store for the whole creation. May God help us to live that way with confidence. How can we do it? Because Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Let's pray together. Jesus, would you pour out your spirit even now on us to give us deep faith, enlarge our faith, strengthen our faith, give us resilient, immovable, steadfast faith in the risen King Jesus and may we live our lives accordingly. Would that resurrection power work itself out in our community as we seek to be faithful, as we seek to love and to serve this world and to bear witness to your risen life and your good reign over all things. And so would you help us today, even as we celebrate the resurrection, enlarge our faith in you, our risen King. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Would you stand with me and worship the risen King Jesus? Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.